Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, I go one-on-one with Arthur Blank about his new book, Good Company, and his views regarding initiatives for Atlanta's West Side, as well as ongoing protests for racial justice. On subjects that need more, more work, need more accountability, need more training, need more clarity, and need better results. And uh, that's what the facts are. So uh, they're not making it up. It's reality. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this, the latest White House Coronavirus Task Force report, says Georgia is making some progress fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. The report, obtained by WABE News, found that Georgia was seventh in the country for new COVID-19 cases for every 100,000 people. This was in the week leading up to August 30th. Now, at this time in Georgia, new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations are down to levels not seen since early July. Still, the report does note there is room for improvement. More than three-quarters of the counties in Georgia have, quote, ongoing levels of community transmission, with close to half the state having, quote, high levels. And at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 270,471 confirmed cases here in Georgia. There are 24,604 hospitalizations. And of those... 4,493 are ICU admissions. Also, 5,633 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. This, of course, is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed two executive orders extending state coronavirus restrictions through October 10th. Now, the order outlines mandatory public health rules for businesses and it continues to ban gatherings of more than 50 people without social distancing. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. How does one build a successful company, not just for profits and to satisfy investors and shareholders, but a company with a reputation that people want to work for, feel valued, and a company that prides itself on having a moral conscience? That's not always taught in most MBA programs. But in a new book, Good Company, businessman, of course, Falcons owner, Atlanta United owner, and philanthropist Arthur Blank lays out the insight of, well, what makes for a good company. Now, proceeds from this book are being donated to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And more than just a blueprint for a good company, the book offers a glimpse into Arthur Blank's childhood, the family business, and a lot more. So joining me now is Arthur Blank. Welcome to the program. Good to talk to you again. 
Uh, thank you, Rose. It's nice to talk to you and nice to talk to all of your listeners as well. Thank you. Before we talk about Good Company, uh, Mr. Blank, I want to talk about this moment that we're in, because on the day of this conversation that's being taped, it's the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington. And right now, this nation is polarized by a pandemic, politics, protests, calling out racial injustices. I've been asking this question since the killing of George Floyd. What do you make of this moment right now in our country? Well, I think um, um, I think it's a very difficult time. I mean, you start with the pandemic. You start with the effects of the pandemic sat on the economy. You start with the issues of social justice, uh, you know, police accountability. I mean, there's there's a lot of things coming uh, to a head um, all at the same time. And so I think the you know the the pressures um, as human beings trying to deal with all these things is is very difficult. Um, and I think that by and large, people are doing the best they can with it. And, and uh, but, you know, we've suffered, you know, uh, incredible amount of losses in this country, 180,000 people and growing by a couple of thousand a day, mm-hmm. sadly. And um, you see a lot of small businesses are being affected and some are closed and some will never reopen. And uh, and then I think you see, you know, is it really interesting, Rose? I had an opportunity to spend some time with John Lewis about a month before he passed away. And um, he did a, he was kind enough to do a town hall meeting for all of our associates and all of our businesses. And then um, Stephanie Blank, on behalf of Rotary, did an interview with uh, Andy Young, um, probably about a week or so after that. So maybe about six weeks ago now, six, seven weeks ago now. And, you know, here's a couple of people, and this is kind of, given me some context to answer your question. Mm-hmm. You know, these are two individuals that truly, in every sense of the word, were, you know, walking disciples of Dr. King, um, lived mar- have lived marvelous lives of leadership and making a difference in people's lives. And, and they both said the same thing very, very, you know, separately is that, you know, um, that we're at a critical point, uh, another critical point in our history. Um, that there has been great progress made. Um, and going back to when, you know, they were involved with Dr. King, the initiation of the civil rights movement and what have you, uh, the recognition that there's great work to be done, you know, based on everything that we're seeing and feeling and um, that we all are aware of in our society today, you're seeing it played out in professional sports and just in the last few days, um, in, in, in a variety of settings and um, beyond that, but they both said, you know, they had great hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very interesting is that they weren't like in despair. They weren't like, you know, this isn't going to get better. This, where are we? We're lost. And, you know, we all have blinders on. I mean, they truly felt like, you know, um, they saw a lot of energy coming out of our young people today. And I, I see that too, personally, I feel that, uh, I think our younger populations are, are asking some of the bigger questions, you know, what, you know, what does happiness mean? What does life mean? And life in turn, ask them the reciprocal question of that of giving you life, what are you going to do with it? Uh, I think they're taking those questions much more seriously. So I, I, I hope and I pray and I'm doing whatever I can personally with my work and the foundation's work and in our sports and trying to set the right kind of examples that uh, that this is a a, uh, a unique point in our history. 
Um, so um, I, I think in many ways, you know, um, but uh, and my conclusion probably would be different. But what President Trump said last night is that this may be the most important election we have uh, during during our lifetimes is probably true. Um, you know, I my conclusion relative to that answer would be different than his would be. But mm -hmm. um, but I you know, but I think that's true. And um, and I think the fact that we see, you know, we've had some unfortunate, you know, some violence and some arson and some looting and things of that nature. But by and large, you know, all these protests that we've experienced across our nation, um, and particularly on the anniversary on the, you know, on the march to, to on Washington, to Washington and on Washington, um, I think have had real purpose to them. Um, and people trying to, you know, to make sure that the light is shining brightly on subjects that uh, need more, you know, more work, need more accountability, need more training, need more clarity and need better results. And uh, it's uh, and, that, and that's what the facts are. So I, they're not making it up. It's reality. It's a reality. And it's a reality that a lot of professional athletes are now speaking out, including members of players from the Atlanta United, along with the Atlanta Dream and other teams. And right. they've said, look, you know, we're immersing ourselves in the calls for racial justice and accountability. You support yeah. these actions. Even if it means well, I, players, I, I do. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. And our own team, our own team, beyond Atlanta United, and they obviously chose the other night, Wednesday night, to not play. <clears throat> and that was something that you know we didn't, we weren't in control of it. We didn't dictate it. We actually didn't even know that you know they were going to do that to right before the match was going to start. And you know, I honor their right to make that decision. <clears throat> our Falcons, we have a social justice committee. It's made up of about a dozen players and, you know, they've continued to meet on these subjects as they've come up and making sure we're doing the work as a foundation, make sure they're doing the work personally and as the Atlanta Falcons. And, you know, they're one of their major areas of interest, which I, I think is, is, is critical today, is they're much more conscious of the importance of their right to vote and not just their right to vote, but their willingness to vote and make certain that they vote, make certain they get registered, make certain they get their ballot cast. And, uh, you know, we all can protest in a variety of ways, but <clears throat> we want to protest to count uh, and we want our vote to count. So, you know, the strongest form of protest that we can make is to make sure that, you know, instead of 46% of our population voting in a national election, it becomes 96% of our, our, our people are voting. And, 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 uh, so our players are asking questions about that and how can they help and how can they participate and how can they be supportive. A man of your influence, and you do have influence, do you feel you've done or you could do more and immerse yourself yeah. in this call? I think, Rose, you know, uh, there's a couple of expressions which we talk about in the book. One is there is no finish line, mm -hmm. um, which I, you know, use really throughout my life. And the other is, that, you know, the best or nothing. And the best of nothing really is attached. There is no finish line. So, you know, I, I agree with John Lewis. I agree with Andy Young and I agree. I don't know what your views are, but I would agree with those two uh, gentlemen that I have uh, revered for m many, many years that, you know, yes, progress has been made, but we're not where we need to be. And what I said earlier is that whether it's our foundation, whether it's our sports teams, whether it's our, our retail business in Montana, our work we do out there, Wherever the need, wherever the wherever the fire is the brightest, is where we where, where we want to be. We want to be 
on the forefront. We want to be with the, the needs of the greatest. Uh, we want to be a participant in, in solutions. We want to be part of the solutions. We want to work with others in collaboration and partnership. Uh, I mean, this is the, the United States and United actually means a lot. It means a lot in terms of Atlanta United, our soccer team, but United in terms of our country, which is not today, uh, really represents the, the best of us. So we want to be in the middle uh, of, of any, uh, I shouldn't say in the middle, we want to be in the forefront of any, mm-hmm. any ways that we can move the ball down the field and make progress. Let's shift to a place that you clearly know, which is Sunnyside, New York, because this is where it kind of begins. But tell our listeners a little bit about these folks, Max, Molly, and Michael. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, well, my, my my mother is Molly. She lived to almost 100 years old. Mm-hmm. My father died when I was 15. He was 44. And my brother is uh, almost three years older than I am. His name is Michael. And I think, you know, a lot of my where I am today in terms of my life and my spirit and, you know, what motivates me and uh, what my principles are based on, what these values we talk about in the book at length are based on, come out of that, you know, that upbringing. Mm-hmm. We were, we have a very middle-class family. We, uh, we, um, we had a one, we had a one bedroom apartment that we all, you know, lived in. My mom and dad slept in the foyer on a little pull-out, you know, sofa and we had one bathroom that we all shared. Um, so, you know, my sense of being close to that reality of, uh, of understanding, you know, life in a broader sense, I think really started with my family. My mother was, was, uh, very much an activist in every sense of the word you would love that you would have loved to have known her Rose. <laughs> yeah. When we didn't have any money, she was out, you know, in the street, in the community, trying to make a difference and trying to give back and trying to stand for things that she felt strongly about. And I think that that had a big influence on myself and my whole family, but certainly on myself. And um, and, and that's why we, we, you know, we, you know, these values, which are so important to us. I mean, it is, as you described earlier, it's important to have profitability, to have a sustained organizations over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. But it's equally important to have a set of values that really drive behavior and drive relationships with fans, customers, guests, associates, communities, et cetera. And I think the beauty of all of our businesses today and the beauty of the history of Home Depot, which is still running in the fifth gear and doing a wonderful job, is that you know these relationship-based values, um, if you follow them and believe in them, the answers for a lot of solutions, business-wise and otherwise, are pretty easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only when you waver from them is when you get in trouble. So and those, uh, we make a point of not wavering from them. And those values, and we're going to get to that in a moment, because you talk about the core values of the Home Depot. But I imagine mm-hmm. also those values are, and you kind of alluded to this, rooted in that little pharmacy on the corner yeah. of 47th and Queens Boulevard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it was, you know, my dad was a pharmacist. But at that point, you know, a pharmacist mm-hmm. was kind of half doctor, half pharmacist. When you were a pharmacist then, it wasn't a matter of taking you know, pills out of a jar and what have you. He, he was, he would manufacture, he would be producing and doing his own compounding, you know, mixing products, et cetera. So, and people in the community, they came into the store uh, also, one, because the medical field wasn't where it is today and uh, doctors weren't as available then, but they would ask my dad a lot of questions about, you know, about medicine, uh, you know, directionally, et cetera. So 
I think the whole orientation of like being there for somebody else, trying to help somebody else, focus on, you know, how to improve life for another person, not just yourselves. I think that even started in those early days when I'd go watch my dad work in the drugstore and mm -hmm. work long hours. And uh, so I think that notion of giving back and connection to who you're serving, in our case, fans, guests, customers, uh, was really honed at a very early age for me. I don't want to give away too much in the book, but people should know that you, when your father died, you were 15, and your yeah. mother, who didn't really have a lot of experience running the business, stepped in yeah. and took it even further. Yeah, she did. I mean, she was uh, uh, she was only 37 at the time when my dad passed away. And at that point, my father had started, he was an entrepreneur. Um, he started his own pharmaceutical business. It was a mail order distribution house to doctors and nursing homes and hospitals and drugstores across the country. When he died suddenly, my mother you know, stepped into the business and ran it for a number of years, eventually sold it to a company that I ended up working for. Mm -hmm. And my partner, Bernie, who actually worked for as well. And that's how the two of us got together and eventually came back from California to start the Home Depot here in Atlanta. Let's talk about that because I want to know, were you and Bernie, first of all, everyone should know you and Bernie, y'all got fired, right? He did. He did get fired. <laughs> of, uh, was it April of 70. April 78, I think, something like that. I mean, I, but I, I remember it very clearly. And we talk about a little bit about in the book and yeah. how it took place and what it meant and and but, how, you know, uh, you know, one of our partners said said to us, and I think language probably is okay, but said, you do, you guys don't realize you just got kicked in the ass with a golden horseshoe. Mm. And uh, we're thinking about, you know, what we're going to do in the future. And we had a lot of different opportunities corporately and started our own businesses, et cetera. <clears throat> And we always felt that though we were operating Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers, which was the most successful chain of home improvement center stores in the country at that mm -hmm. time, if we ever had to compete with a large, no frills, down market, big box store with low prices and great services, that we couldn't have, couldn't have done it. So we said, now that we had a chance to live our lives over again, why don't we try to leapfrog the industry and open up a retail store that nobody's ever seen, hence the Home Depot. And the first stores were in June of 1979. The voice you hear is Arthur Blank, co-founder of The Home Depot, owner of the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta United. And we're talking about his book, Good Company, which also offers a glimpse into Arthur's childhood, a family business, and a lot more. And also the blueprint through his lens on what makes for a good company. You write, quote, as a business owner, sometimes you have to acknowledge the temptation to get ahead of yourself and take steps to protect against it. It's a policy I, I still follow with my business today. Were you and Bernie surprised at the growth of the Home Depot stores? Well, yeah, yes. I mean, I can tell you there was more than one occasion we'd be driving around together, um, doing store visits or whatever it may be, or, you know, going to lunch or, and, we'd, you know, give each other a little elbow on the side and say, can you believe what, what's happened? I mean, um, because our philosophy was open up, each store is though it's the only store we operate, make sure each store is the best one we've ever opened up. We're opening up one a week later, make sure it's even better than the preceding one, et cetera. So, you know, the success, we had a five-year plan. We had a one-year budget. We did all the financial guidelining that we should do. But um, when, when it amounted to what it amounted to, uh, the fact we were able to go public two years after we started and then a number of public offerings after that, um, today, you know, the company is it just stocked at its all-time high a couple of days ago. 
So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great American story mm -hmm. of having a vision, um, you know, making sure that a culture is built to support the vision. So you're not diluting it over time. And that's a critical part of what we talk about in the book is that how do you maintain that culture, which is, uh, a, you know, the most difficult thing, in my opinion, to do. But there's ways to do it. And I think we, we learned how to do that. And then we built this incredible company that's, uh, it, and, and it's great for our customers. It's great for the shareholders. It's great for our associates. And it's great for the communities in which these stores are located. Well, um, and you know, beyond, beyond that, I'll just say it's great for philanthropy because my fortune, Bernie's fortune, other people who have done extraordinarily well, they're recycling, you know, their their wealth back into society in very purposeful ways. Well, so it's, um, that's what you talk about, because you say the Arthur M. Blanks family of businesses, they are based on six of the eight core values from the Home Depot. Right. And I want to focus on the one that talks about giving back to others. It also the connection with the Atlanta Falcons, because even in reading, goodness, you really wanted to buy the Atlanta Falcons. But you said not only was your instinct that we could make the team the center of a sports based enterprise that was run on the same principles at the Home De Depot so successful. But you also said and this is what really stuck out to me. You said that it was more important that you could be a community asset playing a role in the renaissance of Atlanta's downtown and historic West Side neighborhoods. So even back then in your bid wanting to buy the Falcons, you saw us as also being important to those communities. That was something that was present for you back then? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I um, you know, I mean, we were concerned about, you know, the big investment we're making in buying an NFL franchise. But really, you know, I mean, I, I felt like I'd been a season ticket holder for many years. You probably know, Rose, and your listeners know, uh, our listeners know, is that, you know, the team had not had back-to-back -back winning seasons since the franchise was launched in Atlanta in 1966. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, it wasn't a source of pride. Uh, and I felt like it, Home Depot obviously was a source of pride in our city where it started and obviously grown throughout the country and beyond. So I felt like, you know, if we own this team, that we could improve upon it. And it, it really represents an asset of the community. I mean, everybody identifies with a professional football team, the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've been able to do that, uh, not only in attendance on the field, et cetera, with our results, uh, which have been 50% better than the prior owners over a long period of time, but really involvement in the community and an opportunity when we built this Mercedes-Benz Stadium where I'm talking to you from today to make a difference in the whole west side of Atlanta, which clearly had fallen behind where it was, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s. So even that, we've made tremendous progress, got a lot of other people involved, which is part of our goal. So it's a lot of people pushing all at the same time, uh, but there's still work to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, there's progress made, but there's still work to be done. That was my That's next question. No finish line comes into play. That was actually my next question. You know, when you look at that work over the years, particularly with the foundation, and how would you assess the work that's been done and what still needs to be done? Well, I think in terms of the West Side, um, you know, if you look at virtually every marker in terms of public education or safety or you know, housing or you know, I mean, it just there've been tremendous improvements in every, each one of the indexes would support that. Mm -hmm. But they're not, you know, they're much better than they were. 
the first thing you have to do if you're going to turn a train around is stop it. We did that. We stopped the erosion. We began to push the train back the other way, and it's moving back in the other direction. But, you know, I said this when we built the stadium, is that building the stadium will take us construction-wise three and a half, four years. This work, and I was reminded by Cameron Alexander, may rest in peace, you know, the Reverend from the Antioch Baptist Church, and said, this is going to take a long time. He said, you have to have the patience and the staying power to work on these, uh, you know, generational changes and be committed to it. And I said, you know, Reverend, I understand that, and I, I get it. And I've said publicly, we're committed to the West Side uh, forever. I mean, we're committed to Atlanta forever. And we're really committed, you know, as, as our philanthropy grows now and we, you know, try to become more of a national presence is try to make a difference on a national on a national basis and these other communities as well. But certainly starting here at home in Atlanta. In the book, as you take the reader through the importance of those values, we talked about putting people first. You also talk about listening. How much of that has been important for you because you've been in so many different ventures. And when folks told you, for example, not to listen, not to buy the Falcons. Yeah, I, I think, you know, being good, I, I would say, and I mean this, you know, I, this is, I would say, a 100% factual statement. The greatest part of our successes have come out of a couple of things, a sense of humility. And the humility is that, come, is that other people really do know better than we do whether it be our fans or whether it be our customers or whether it be the community. So the work we did on the West side and have doing on the West side is really based on what we learned through probably 300 neighborhood meetings over times when we just sat and took notes and listened. You know, the people in these communities, this is what we, we need jobs. We need better education. We need a safe place for our kids when they come home from school in the afternoon, the variety of things that they, they wanted. It wasn't our genius that came up with those things. Our genius was that subordinating whatever feelings we may have or thoughts you may have to the wisdom of the people that we were serving. And that's true in business and that's true in our community work as well. And so I think you have to be a good listener and, you know, that's not complicated. I mean, you just have to be willing to listen. I mean, HD improved dramatically over the years, not because Bernie and I were geniuses. The only genius I would say that was between the two of us is that we truly believe that the customers knew the best. So we always put the customers on top of this inverted pyramid. They're up on top. Our frontline associates taking care of those customers were there next, all the way down to myself and Bernie at the bottom. And that's true with all of our businesses today. You know, fans that come into this building, whether it be for a soccer match or a football game or a concert or any sort of events, those are the ones that we have to please. So it's important for us as a result of that, and you need some way to measure that. So for mm -hmm. the last three years, last full three years, the NFL, Major League Soccer, amongst all the other teams in both leagues combined, were, were voted number one for fan experience based on food and beverage. And that, you know, that tells us us walking in their footsteps and thinking as though a fan would be thinking is working. And that would be true in our PGA business. It's true in all of our businesses. I take our guest rooms, which be foreign to, you know, a lot of our, 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 our visitors, but our talkers that I mean, people listen today. You know, we have this last year we have a 96% return rate. We mm -hmm. have no we have no marketing budget. So 96% of the people that are there at, at Mountain Sky Guest Ranch, they sign up to come back the next year, same cabin, same week, put a deposit down, etc. And they do that because the experience is so good. But the, one of the reasons it's so good is because we listen to that and we try to give them the services 
the environment, you know, the food, everything else that really they're looking for. So, When did you decide to write this book? Why now? Well, actually, it wasn't kind of a now decision. We started on it uh, probably three years ago, maybe four years ago, three and a half years ago. And uh, it happens to be published now. And I think, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, Bashirat, which is a Jewish word for the, you know, God says it's like meant to be. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think God has meant this book to be published now because I do think that, you know, um, our, you know, our younger populations, uh, are looking for answers and they're looking for answers not just based on you know what's in it for me but a broader sense of you know how do i serve humanity how do i serve a higher purpose than just profitability there's nothing wrong with profitability there's nothing wrong with capitalism all of that's important all of that is is, is is good but you know if you're able to build something that really has purpose to the associates the people that you're serving to the communities that you're living in um, examples, another example, which we don't talk about in the book because it happened post that, but these ranches we operate in Montana have been operating for uh, over 100 years, accepting guests. This year, we determined we closed, we closed both the ranches down um, because we couldn't protect the associates, we couldn't protect the, 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 uh, the guests we were having, and we couldn't protect the communities. We didn't want to be thought of as, from a community standpoint, of, well, here's these guys from Atlanta, Georgia, they don't really care. They're running their ranches anyway and bringing in disease from all over the country, nationally, internationally, where a lot of our guests come from and associates come from. So, you know, they have a deep appreciation, you know, because we give up, we're connected to the community, we give back to the community, and we're showing a caring heart to the community. And finally, Arthur Blank, who should read this book? You know, I mean, to be honest with you, Rose, I'd love to see, uh, you know, Probably any anybody under the age 50, 60 should read it. People that are in a position where they're still thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? And even I would say beyond that, 70 or 80, people that are looking for direction in their life, people looking for a different way to, to um, you know, to how do I find a life that's compatible with living for purpose, living for values, and and doing well as well so I can take care of my family, take care of my family, the future, et cetera but also feel like at the end of the day that, you know, I've led a life of purpose, not just purpose for myself and my loved ones, but purpose for humanity. And I, I do think that uh, our younger uh, populations today are pressing more on those big questions, you know, what it really is happiness, uh, not just my happiness, but what does true happiness uh, look like and feel like for a family? What does it feel like for a neighborhood? And, you know, in America, we have to figure out, you know, how do we develop more of a neighborhood? We've gotten really good in terms of technology and connecting people. Mm-hmm. We haven't done a good job at building neighborhoods, which is based on human connections and not technology connections. The book is titled Good Company. The author is Arthur Blank. Mr. Blank, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. Thank I really you, appreciate Rose. it. Good to see you again. Please stay safe. You too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In response to the protests that have been taking place throughout the nation, there's been this trend, and that's companies and corporations making donations, releasing public statements, and offering diversity and inclusion training. Well, it's a way to acknowledge and combat systemic racism and biases. That's what they say. Now, the Cary Club is a social impact networking platform that's trying to help during this 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 climate in our nation. It deals with racial equity in the workplace. Now, Roden Monrose is the founder and CEO of the Cary Club, and he joins me now. We're going to talk about a new pilot program that's going to help young black professionals grow in their careers by serving on the boards of nonprofit organizations. Roden, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. What do you make of this moment that we're in right now as it relates to just everything, the pandemic, the protests, politics at the intersection of all of this is racial equity and, and all of those conversations. I mean, this whole moment has been a very heavy moment for me um, as a black male, as someone who lived in Harlem um, and was a witness to so much of the um those underlying issues like like they were always there uh the pandemic i think really just was a catalyst in that it exposed all those things in a in a way that hadn't been done before i think because so many people were at home and so many people were tuned into combination of social media and tv that for the first time people actually saw it Mm. it's always been there but people i think the pandemic made it possible for people to see it outside of the African-American community that already knew about it. So you feel this moment is different in all the other moments that we've had in this nation as it relates to civil rights? Um, I think that that the pandemic was probably an important catalyst, and that's the, really the main differentiator. Um, I think that a lot of people have been comfortable just going about their days, worrying about the, like, next work day and not really putting a lot of time thinking into thinking about like what's going on outside of their own world. Um, but the pandemic kind of like shut that down for a lot of people. And um, it opened up in a, it opened up a positive possibility for people to see what, what was going on. What do you make of the corporations and businesses and, and even some media entities all acknowledging or trying to put their face to racial equity issues and concerns and even for some even throwing a lot of money at at some of these organizations that are fighting for these justices i, I definitely have feel two ways about it mm-hmm. for one one i i feel that it's unfortunate that it took so long for that awareness to happen um but at the same time I have the feeling of better late than never. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we're going to solve some of the more like intractable problems in our society, um, because businesses play such an important role and have such a 
loud voice in in politics and society in general i think that it, they're they're an important piece of the puzzle to to move in the needle on some of those problems so um i think it's important to have them there mm-hmm. road let's talk about the carry club what's the backstory here how did all this come about Carry Club came about, it really ties into a little bit about my own backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved to the United States when I was 12 years old. Um, I came up here with my sister and we both came here to live with our mom. Um, our mom lived in Harlem. Um, we came from St. Lucia. She wanted to, my mom wanted my sister and I to have the best possible education in America. That was a very important goal of hers. Um, at the time she worked as a nanny, um, and she wasn't, uh, getting paid all that much. So there's only so much that she could do by herself as a single parent. Um, but nonprofits played an important role in, in helping to close some of that gap. So after school programs and scholarships, um, uh, nonprofits like prep for prep and an SEO sponsors for educational opportunity. They really helped to open some doors for my sister and I that otherwise uh, would have been challenging to to get to from from Harlem. Um, mm-hmm. The education system, at least at the time, was is, was in rough shape. Um, the schools there, um, the public school there. Um, but my mom was very determined, and we were able to to go to the, some incredible schools uh, because of the support from nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward, I ended up working on Wall Street after college. Uh, my sister just graduated medical school a few months ago, and now she's working at a hospital in New York City um, on the front lines battling the pandemic. Um, my mom came to America without a high school degree, but she was able to, through after school programs, through community colleges, work her way towards getting a master's degree from NYU in social work. Um, and so she's been at hospitals in New York City the whole time, um, helping people who can't help themselves. Um, and many of them struggling through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them natives of Brooklyn who were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. So all that really culminated in, in my experience while I was working on Wall Street, realizing that uh, there has to be a better way there that first of all i think the realization was that working on wall street i got to experience some of the people who are board members at the nonprofits mm-hmm. uh, i saw that a lot of them were a lot more open minded a lot more aware of things beyond the wall street bubble um, they were also more successful professionally so i i realized that there was a way that we could create a win win situation where uh, the individuals connect to these nonprofit boards and they find that fulfillment, but they also grow professionally. Um, and the companies benefit from the leadership development that takes place. And the nonprofits benefit from having these um, these young professionals serve on their boards. Roden, did you observe that first in that nonprofit world, especially on the boards, that the percentage of black folks, not just folks of color, but particularly black folks, was probably very, very small. Yes, that's something that was always a point of awareness for sure. Um, and I really saw an opportunity to to help solve that with Carry Club. Um, Carry Club 
is fundamentally a, a matching platform. We identify professionals in the corporate world. Uh, we identify nonprofits that align with causes that they're already passionate about. So we're making their lives easier by helping them find something that they already care about um, and helping them jo join that board. Many nonprofits will tell you and will readily admit that they do not have diverse boards. They, the boards are not representative of the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. um, and we are now in a position to actually solve that in a real way um, nationally. So this pilot program that you have that's going to help young black professionals grow, not only in, in their obviously in their careers, but by serving on the boards of nonprofit organizations. Is there any type of training or what do you relate to the young professionals first about their role on being on the board, particularly a nonprofit organization? Whatever that focus is, how do you talk them through that? Because there are a lot of nonprofits out there. Yeah, that's a real thing. So the thing is that, first of all, we want to make sure that we get to know them for who they are. Um, and then we find out what they're passionate about. Um, it's almost always the case that they are involved with something because it aligns with something that is personally uh, of interest to them. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that maybe they were involved with some activity in college uh, and there's a nonprofit right now that provides that, um, that opportunity for, for, for kids um, in, their, in the local community. Uh, but there are different ways, different paths that like lead someone to be um, interested in a particular cause. But it's not enough to just connect them to the cause and say, hey, we're, we're done with you. Mm -hmm. Like, Thank you very much. Uh, we want to make sure we provide training for those individuals uh, so that they could, at the very least, be effective board members. Um, we want to make sure that we get training in uh, governance, in um finance in fundraising mm -hmm. um, some of very key areas that are very important for you to be successful as a as a board member um, but beyond that uh, if we're going to talk about if we want to really make this thing successful which we absolutely do uh, we don't want to just train you place you and be done with you mm -hmm. we want to build a community around this um, we want to help you get access to coaches that will help you along the way so you continue to be successful, especially like when you may encounter a uh, situation on your board uh, that is outside of the standard uh, governance fiduciary responsibility. You could always come back to one of our coaches that will be able to help you out and triage that, uh, mm -hmm. that issue. So we're with you all the way. Let's go to the other side then. When you talk to nonprofits who may say, oh, hey, Roden, yeah, we definitely want to be involved. And yes, we want to have more diversity on our board. And yes, we want more inclusion. And yes, we want this. So now what are you encouraging to them? Or are you? is there a criteria that you want them to meet before you start matching? So at the very least, um, we need to make sure that the nonprofit is in good order. So we want to make sure that they have... Uh, all the governance structure in place, all the, uh, all they're above board. So we are actually uh, working with organizations like uh, Charity Navigator, the largest, mm -hmm. most respected uh, rating agency. Um, we want to make sure that every nonprofit um, is, uh, well, have, has their house in order. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, we understand that a nonprofit is not going to be 
where we would like them to be from a point of diversity. And that's probably, that's part of why we exist. Um, so the most important part is having a willingness and desire to actually commit to being a diverse, um, to having a diverse board. Um, that's where we want to start with the nonprofit. Once we get, once we get that commitment from them, uh, we could move forward and, and, and help with every other dimension of this. Um, what I will say to their credit is like, we did a survey of all the nonprofits and we found out well over 95% of them are actively and eagerly looking to recruit diverse candidates. And I want to be very clear when I say diverse candidates, I do mean black and brown candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, and on top of that, we, we now have a pretty good idea of the professional backgrounds that they're looking to recruit from. So our goal is to marry those two things. We're not just going to match you with a candidate just because, Hey, how's your, like your token black person, your token brown person. Mm -hmm. We're going to find you someone who has the professional background that you're desiring or lacking, um, on your board. So that person is going to be able to hit the ground running and really add value on day one. Um, we're also going to make sure that person is trained and ready to, uh, be a very effective board member for your organization. Um, so. And Carrie club Roden, how, how are you funded? <laughs> we are funded through corporations. So our clients are the companies. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the analogy that I like to bring up is if you think about if your company would like pay for your, your online dating site. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Roden, that was funny. <laughs> so imagine if your company did that, uh, we would be, the uh, Carry Club would be that for nonprofit boards. Mm -hmm. So um, they they would pay for that because they understand that the value comes back to the firm, both um, from the leadership development, um, from the professional development, from the, the network that you build, from being on the board. There is value to the company and they're willing mm -hmm. to pay for that. Um, and we do not charge the nonprofits. That's an important thing. Mm -hmm. um, we want to make sure that we are not a point of friction, especially when we, we're talking about we're going to add some board diversity. Um, sure. We can't why that won't happen. Um, so everyone really wins. Um, the, the individual gets to connect with something they're passionate about. The company gets that professional and leadership development. Uh, the nonprofits don't pay and they get access to high caliber candidates. How do you gauge the effectiveness of what you all are doing, the feedback that you get? And have you had to make some changes or modifications based on feedback? Yeah. I mean, so if we if we look, think of through the, the dating site analogy, so we are a tech platform in that sense. <laughs> um, so we, we have an, an online platform and we've learned a lot from our members um, and we've actually made some significant improvements to the platform, to our, our matching technology. Um, a lot of that is going to be released, uh, released in September. Looking forward to that. Um, we are also going to have the ability, although we're based in New York, we could operate in any major city in America. Um, so this is not going to be limited to New York City at all. Um, many of our clients are Fortune 500 firms, so they have employees all over America. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we won't. We'll, we will be able to source candidates all across the country. Um, and certainly all the nonprofits have uh, chapters in every major city. So uh, this is something that's very solvable. Um, five years from now, I want to be able to do to run another poll that we did, another survey of the nonprofits that we did this year. Um, by 2025, when I, when I run this survey, I do not want the number one reason why nonprofits 
are saying that they don't have a diverse board. I don't want that number one reason to be that they don't have a pipeline because we are the pipeline and this is something that's solvable. Um, within five years, we should see a huge improvement in that diversity pipeline that uh, is always the point of contention for why your board is not diverse. Roden, we started this conversation about you and what drives you to create Carry Club. So now we're going to end with you. This is your passion. How long you want to do this? I enjoy doing this. I'm like one of those strange people that look forward to Mondays. Um, uh, so I, I feel even more commitment, more passion for this, um, especially given the times. Um, I know that there's so much disparity that um, that needs to be addressed uh, in the black community, especially. I think that boards is one that I know I can address and will address. Um, and it's really not something that's limited to just the nonprofit board, because if you think through how things play out, the experience that you get on a nonprofit board that trigger your relationships with corporate boards. And that's a whole other area that's lacking in diversity. Mm, yes. So, uh, we want to be, we want to solve that pipeline problem and we want to make sure that enough black and brown people have board experience where that's no longer being used as an excuse for why you don't have more board candidates. Mm. So there's a, there's a long game here. Um, and, and I'm excited to, and committed to this, uh, to see it all the way through. Um, we are a for-profit company. Um, and the thing that I like about what I do is that like when we win, everyone wins. Um, when we're doing our job successfully, our clients are happy. Uh, the boards are happy. Our members are happy and our investors are happy. And the name Carrie Club, I think I know where it comes from, but I'm going to ask you to give the backstory <laughs> on that. It's so usually people guess, try to guess that it's uh, it's something to do with like me being from the Caribbean. Um, but in fact, uh, what happened was I um, I had a, an incredible Latin teacher in high school. Um, I went to a, a high school in, in Massachusetts called Middlesex. And uh, my Latin teacher was a huge inspiration for me and helped sort of a, my in my journey from leaving the finance world to, to starting a company. Um, and carry club comes from a word that I basically carry club is a word I made up from from the Latin word caritas, mm -hmm. which means charity. Roden Monrose, the founder and CEO of Carry Club. Good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the amazing work that you do and a huge fan of NPR. Listen to you every morning. Appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.